Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Hey Phoebe. Hey Jules, how are you? I'm really good. Sun is shining. We're both in London. I wouldn't call it shining. <laughs> it's shining in North London. This okay. is why people need to come north of the river. Yeah, it's not it's not shining in, in, in West London, actually. It's still a bit grey, um, but it's warmer than it was last week. Last week was so cold. I feel like you know that now spring is coming, which is such a reassuring thing to have on the horizon. Yeah, I'm super happy that it's going a bit warmer. Let's just fast forward to like spring, summer. Yes, the days are getting longer. The spring, summer, like I feel I'm manifesting that I'm going to be outside. I'm going to be seeing people. I might even be hugging some people. I won't be flinching at the touch of their hand. These are the things that I'm really kind of putting out into the universe for myself. Okay, I don't want anyone to touch me. (laughs) No, because what I've realised... No, I'm not interested, because what I've realised with just the lockdown, before, I would always have a cold. Like, Mm -hmm. every couple of months, like, I would have a cold. um, And I really think it's because people don't wash their hands. So I'm happy to continue with like limited touching Mm -hmm. regardless of what happens because I think it's just way more hygienic. There was a tweet I saw which was like how mad is it that people used to literally breathe all over their birthday cake and then cut a slice and hand it to you and we would eat it and that is so true actually like the level of germ that you were just exposed to on a daily basis I will never not wear a mask again, even though I'm sick of wearing masks. I would never just not wear a mask on public transport now. Yeah, there's some things that I'm going to keep because I just don't want to have a cold like every other month anymore. And I haven't been sick all year. God, that's crazy. That's I'm yeah. so envious of that because I actually feel like I've been quite sick at various points. But... Yeah, I haven't been ill at all like all year. So yeah, super happy about that. But tell us about your flight back to London. How was everything? We've been tracking this journey, right? For the last two episodes. This has been like a mini episode arc. So I came back on Friday evening. I am now back in my house in North London with my husband. I have to say, what was weird to me, as someone who travels a lot, um, because I travel with work and then, you know, just traveling, you know, on weekend breaks or going back to see my family or whatever. I'm someone who actually likes airports quite a lot. And I like the routine. I have a very stress-free travel kind of situation laid out for myself and I think people kind of fall into one of two camps where you're either like oh god we've got to go or you get there early you have a glass of wine you buy yourself some skincare like you are very zen in the airport and that is me um but as the week was going on last week and I knew I was flying on Friday my anxiety was so heightened and I kept saying it to my parents like I'm actually really nervous about Friday don't know what to expect all of this kind of stuff just because the rules have changed so much and so frequently. And even though I knew I was coming home, and in the same way that when I went back to Ireland for Christmas, I had followed all of the guidelines, it was okay to do so. You're so worried about getting in trouble. I don't know if this was the same for you when you were flying to Senegal for Christmas. No. No. (laughs) (laughs) Like, big pause. (laughs) Cannot relate. Okay. No, I, I I didn't feel that anxious. I want to focus on sort of your recent trip, but like the thing that was so annoying when we traveled is that we were like, okay, let's get to the airport. Let's go mm-hmm. chill in the lounge. And then we got to Madrid where we had like a three, four hour layover mm-hmm. and there was no lounge. Oh man. And nothing to eat, nothing to and, do. <laughs> yeah. Only like vending machines. And like, we were so upset but I wanted to make sure that we traveled together because I think if I was by myself, I would have been a bit, Mm -hmm. anxious because I don't really want to be dealing with like conflict yes (laughs) by myself and also I just feel like I'm very confident you know I never panic about oh have I checked in my bag correctly have I done I know what I'm doing I get there I check in my bag I go through but when we got on the flight and obviously the flight from Dublin to London is we Oh, yeah, sorry. I meant all of us collectively. It was just me traveling on on my own. But when when the flight boarded, um, like the flight from Dublin to London is less than an hour. But we were on a big, like one of the flights that you would get to the US, like or an international flight, you know. And um, 
I was a bit like, God, this is strange because there were so many people on it. So as we're sitting down, I'm sitting in my my seat and the little screen on the seat in front like flashes up and you know how it shows you the map to be like, okay, this is where you are. This is how long you've got to go. And that flashed up and it was Dublin to New York because they obviously just hadn't cleared it from the previous flight. And like I said, I'm very confident in airports, like flights and things. And my body just went weak. I was just like, oh my God, I've gotten on a flight to New York. And there was no part of me that was like, that couldn't have happened because your passport and your ticket have been checked so much. I was just like, I said to my husband when I got home, in the space of about 30 seconds, panic drenched my body. And then I was just so serene. I was just like, I'm just going to New York because there's one thing I'm not doing at this point is putting up my hand and being like, I think I've gotten on the wrong flight. Am I supposed to be going to Heathrow? So it's like... My, uh, honestly anyway obviously it was Heathrow but then once that had passed like I was sitting there I was watching my episode of WandaVision like da, 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 and we were just not leaving and then suddenly it came to my I say suddenly maybe after about 20 minutes it came to my attention that actually there was a guy the next row over who wouldn't put on his mask and that's why we hadn't left and I was just like oh my god my nerves are fried <laughs> this is but I don't even understand that me either and this is the thing the air hostesses I felt so sorry for them there was like a a cluster of them around and obviously what you'd like to do is just say well then leave the flight sir but he was traveling with his children and they were having to reason with him negotiate with him and be like I totally understand we know I know this is the thing I think the reason that they didn't was because he was with children you kick him off you're kicking the children off we're there for another two hours In the end, they were just like, it was almost as though they had to be like, no, I agree with you. But if you could just put it on, then we can all, you know, get on our way. And then you don't have to wear it anymore. Like this kind of thing, which I felt so sorry for them. They had to bring him down a fresh mask and all of this kind of stuff. They were like, it's just that everybody else is kind of looking to get to London as well. You know, would you mind? And I just thought, no one said anything, including myself. You know, and you think that you might speak up in a situation like that, but everyone was just kind of looking sideways and then looking away again. Because I feel people who are happy to be in that situation on a flight with the flight staff saying, please, can you put on a mask and still kind of refusing to do so, they are too volatile for me to be like, "Uh, excuse me, I as a fellow passenger also think you should be wearing your mask. I don't want to be involved. If we're in the situation that we're in and you are on a flight and you are not wearing a mask, then you're definitely unhinged. Absolutely. You are ready for the smoke. Like you're yes. so ready for anyone to say anything and you'll attack that person because there's mm-hmm. no way that you take a stand like that and you're like, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> oh, sorry, guys, I totally forgot to put my mask on. Yeah, absolutely. You are ready to be like, oh, are you talking to me? Yeah. And I'm not ready for that. So I was just <laughs> exactly. like, <laughs> But that's good that they talked him down, basically. Yes. He put the mask on in the end. He put the mask on in the end. Now, to be honest, I'm so not looking for conflict in a situation like this. I couldn't even look over at him because I was worried he was going to oh, see okay. my, catch my eye and be like, have you got a problem? Mm. And I would be like, sir, I thought I was going to New York until about five minutes ago, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just think with everything going on, you know, people like that are like the worst people. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally, totally. That's all I can say. Like, you're absolutely the worst person And if you feel that way, take your own private plane. Yeah, this is the thing. Like, I feel most people on that flight are, I mean, certainly for myself, I'm already mortified that I'm on that flight. And I know that my situation is like an extenuating one, an extenuating circumstance. But I'm still thinking, oh, my God, anyone who sees me on this flight is just thinking, oh, does she she not realize we're in a global pandemic? Whereas if you're coming, as you said, no mask on, you're ready for a fight and you don't care because you think you're in the right. So anyway, it won't be happening to me again anytime soon. I'm in London for the foreseeable now. So I feel sorry for those air hostesses because it's almost like like they're essential workers. Totally. You know, they don't have a choice. This is the, the industry that they're in. This is the job that they have. And they're probably dealing with people like that every single flight. There's one. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why they don't even want the smoke. They're like, okay, sir, okay, this because they're probably being harassed and dealing with this type of thing all the time. I think it's outrageous. I think it's wrong. What was the airline? It was Aer Lingus. Okay. And it's always 
impeccable surface I love flying with them and I as you said I felt such sympathy because I just thought oh man I would rather chew sand than have to be masked up talking to someone like this who really thinks that he's doing something by getting on this flight (laughs) and like not wearing a mask were there any male air hostesses no I don't think so or if there were maybe they were just like no I took the last one (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they're on rotation no, yeah, yeah. Too pulling the shorts from the kitchen <laughs> yeah crazy and I'm trying to think I think for me like when I've been in public situations that are actually awkward like I've been like that one person that does say something have you but I think I'm so drained by COVID mm-hmm. that even I would have just been like no yeah, like literally hide your head because I always think that in the situations where you say something and nobody else pipes up, it's so demoralizing. You know, I've been in situations. Yeah, but I don't expect people to pipe up. People are cowards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like, think I'm... I don't. If I'm in a situation, I don't expect anyone to pipe up on my behalf or anything because people are cowards. You will literally be stabbed on a flight, and mm-hmm. people are going to turn the other way. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so no one is gonna say anything I'm laughing thinking about those people you know who were then put on no flight lists after they stormed the capital and they were losing their minds in the airport and they were crying and screaming like I'm being attacked I mean they're saying I'm a terrorist it's like that is a moment where I'd be like I would actually feel quite relieved that you're not on my flight like what was gonna happen when the drinks trolley came around oh my gosh the world is such a crazy place I really do think it's best to stay home Seriously. Now, as a kind of a pivot on that, like one of the things that I know a lot of people have been doing when they've been staying home is revisiting old TV shows. And I don't know if you saw any of the stuff that came out about Joss Whedon last week. Were you, did you watch Buffy? I mean, it was a show that was on, like I was never a big fan. The old show that I'm watching is Girlfriends. Yes, you meant. I haven't gotten around to, to Buffy. I feel like Buffy and Girlfriends as a start point are so different genre-wise it's like oh yeah yeah, for sure but I was hugely into Buffy I absolutely loved it but I know Sarah Michelle Gellar I mean she was so famous yes oh my god and she was the absolute darling of that time like Marianne Prince Jr all of that kind of stuff anyway basically one of the characters from Buffy came out last week Charisma Carpenter who played Cordelia and And I remember Cordelia I mean, I actually, there was no character that I didn't really like on Buffy. So I can't be like, I loved Cordelia and I loved Giles and I loved, so I'm just going to leave it there. But she basically came out and confirmed something that has been a rumor for quite some time, which is that Joss Whedon, who was the kind of the creator behind Buffy, was hugely abusive, verbally, mentally, and contributed hugely to a really toxic atmosphere on set. And the reason that this was kind of so interesting is that little bits and bobs have come out over the years. His ex-wife wrote a really long opinion piece back in 2017 about basically how people like Joss Whedon hide in plain sight because he positions himself as this like feminist and he'll always be talking about, hey, you know, I as a straight white male got to be supporting and shouting out my fellow citizens almost. And his ex-wife basically said, that is bullshit. You know, he's not a good person. He is deeply narcissistic. He's deeply manipulative. And then you had Ray Fisher, who is playing, you know, the role of cyborg in the DC Universe films. He was in Justice League, which was originally supposed to be directed by Zack Snyder, but Zack Snyder had to pull out for, I think, familial reasons. And Joss Whedon took over. And Ray Fisher basically launched or or pushed for a full investigation into Joss Whedon because he said you know the environment that Whedon created on set was really toxic that Fisher himself had been a victim of Whedon's bullying and I thought it was a really as sad as it was when Charisma Carpenter released her statement last week she said that she you know has been dealing with the ramifications of this abuse and kind of manipulation for the best part of 20 years But what prompted her to actually speak out at this point was because she saw and heard what had happened to Ray Fisher and thought, this is my fault because I didn't say something sooner. And um, Fisher had a really lovely statement that he then issued following Carpenters where he said, you know, that her bravery is kind of unparalleled 
And she supported this investigation hugely and spoke behind the scenes, spoke to Warner Brothers and, and all of this kind of stuff. But I know we're not going to spend the, the whole of the episode today talking about this, but I thought it was a really interesting look at the burden that victims of abuse, be it physical, mental, verbal, take upon themselves, that Charisma Carpenter in this instance would think that it's her fault that this happened to Ray Fisher, as opposed to Whedon ever having to hold himself responsible, and the camaraderie that then exists between victims in this respect, that Ray Fisher, a black man, was able to say, actually, I I appreciate the support that Charisma Carpenter, a white woman, experienced 20 years ago when we weren't having conversations around Me Too or feminism or consent in the same way, and in the same way that we've only really recently started having meaningful conversations about race and racism and xenophobia and how that manifests itself as well. It's really tricky. I think when you experience something so traumatising, you can put it in the context of any workplace or any situation where someone has power, right, and they abuse that power. And so I could understand how one would feel like, oh, I wish I had spoke up because maybe it would have prevented, you know, this person continuing to like abuse and harass and humiliate people. But things are just never that simple. And I always think it's better late than never. So the fact that she has supported this investigation, I think, takes so much courage because it was also so long ago now that it's easy for people to discredit you just because of time. So the fact that you would step up you know, that's something that takes so much courage. I can only applaud her mm-hmm. for that, you know, and then also applaud the fact that Ray Fisher would actually say, I want an investigation as well. Yeah. That takes so much courage. No, totally. And the thing is, you know, when the kind of Me Too movement started gathering traction, one of the questions that you started to see as women started speaking out about the abuse and bullying that they had encountered there were a lot of gaps that got filled where you thought, oh, you know, that person was a really fantastic actor. I wondered why they didn't do anything else. But actually, it's because they were blacklisted. It's because they were assaulted and they spoke up about it. And then they were considered to be difficult to work with. And I remember the guy who directed Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, I can't think of his name now, Peter, whatever it is, he came out and said that this is true Because when we were filming Lord of the Rings, we had two actresses in mind for roles. And Weinstein reached out to us and said, listen, don't work with them. They're absolutely nightmarish. They're unreliable. They're difficult to work with. They're so on, so on, so on. So, you know, Charisma Carpenter hasn't really acted in anything since Buffy and the Buffy spinoff Angel. And so her career had the brakes put on it. Ray Fisher, I'm fairly certain, had his role as cyborg basically cut completely. So, you know, as an up-and-coming actor, this is his first big franchise. Some actors go a career without ever having a franchise that they can be attached to. Is he now going to be blacklisted for the same reason? And that's one of the things that we are still, as a society, not great at doing. We're not great at recognising the literal cost the financial cost that goes hand in hand with speaking out against these institutions. Yeah, and I also think that people get away with it when they treat everyone badly. That is how you hide in plain sight. When you treat everybody awfully, then people feel like, oh, that's just how they are. But they're brilliant, but they deliver. And I think that's when, you know, it's easier to kind of weed someone out when they've done something very specific against this person or this group of people. Mm -hmm. But when they treat everyone that they work with or a significant number of people that they work with badly, it essentially just becomes their brand. (laughs) And it becomes what you have to put up with to have that opportunity. And it's almost like a charming quirk of their personality. It's like when you hear people say, oh, so-and-so just tells it like it is. It's like, Mm. hmm. Actually, they're super unpleasant to be around. So maybe they could rein that back in. But yeah, I thought it was I thought it was interesting in the context of everything that we had discussed regarding the Golden Globes last week and you know what recognition can look like because Joss Whedon has been held up as like, oh, he's such a young genius and he did this and he did that. And it's difficult then to see listen, this conversation has been had ad nauseum about separating the art from the artist. And people will say things like, 
oh, well, I love Rosemary's Baby, but I really hate Roman Polanski. Or yeah, I was in I was in my French class and then somebody, the teacher actually gave an example and it was like, oh, I watched a Woody Allen movie. I was like, who's doing this in 2021? It's like, can you not do that, please? Exactly. And the thing is, from a personal perspective, okay, maybe you really, really like Woody Allen and maybe I am just a complete hack, but... Can you really name a Woody Allen film that's like, oh my God, Juliet, I couldn't live my life without having this film in it. It's a very tired rhetoric. He's not an innovator. He's not doing anything special. Listen, I don't know what people's obsession is, but I think it just links really neatly to kind of what you're saying in terms Mm -hmm. of people trying to separate the art and the artist. In terms of like me, I'm not here for it. I don't want to work with anyone that's toxic, anyone that you know, keeps me up at night. I don't want to work with anyone that's like giving me high blood pressure, you know, making me have anxiety. I think it is more challenging in the creative space mm-hmm. where there is a scarcity of opportunity, right? Women have a shelf life of when they're relevant. Only a few women can really still be relevant and have amazing careers like post 50. And of course, you know, there aren't that many big blockbuster roles for like black men and women especially black women in Hollywood so it puts people in a position where um they feel they have to put up with really toxic situations and it just gives so much power to studios and producers and directors and people that are really established in their career Mm -hmm. so I know that it's a different context and I really do sympathize with that but I think that That's why it's really important for people, not just victims, but like people that are witnessing it. And, you know, basically, so I haven't watched the new Britney Spears documentary yet, but I've watched like a few interviews around it. But then after like Justin Timberlake apologized, the director of the documentary said, this is institutional. It is not one person that put Britney in the situation that she's in. So when somebody's able to have a successful career, but be an abuser... Right. It's not one person that's responsible for that. It's a machine. It's a bunch of people that have enabled that behavior and made excuses for that behavior. Totally. So true. And and I think that there is a kind of a symbiotic or maybe parasitic is a better way of putting it relationship between the media and the consumers of that media, because you had a lot of of directors and editors of publications saying, you know, we were all doing it, but it was what sold magazines. Like, of course, we were taking pictures, upskirt pictures of Britney to see if she was wearing any underwear, because that's what was selling the magazine, because you wanted to see that. And as disgusting as that is, it is true. And you think about what age we would have been when that media narrative was being set. You know, 2007, I was like 16 years old. And that was when Britney shaved her head. That was when everything was going to shit for her, basically. And you still see those memes. And I have, you know, reblogged them or shared them or whatever. I posted them on my Tumblr. Like, if Britney can get through 2007, you can get through today. Like, all of this kind of nonsense. Because we didn't have the emotional vocabulary to talk about what is going on in the context of this girl who has essentially been abused since day dot. Yeah, exactly. And I think that now that we do have the language, we need the courage. Mm. And that's why for me, like, I do try to like, you know, speak up and call things out as as much as I can, because I just notice that no one else does. And it's very important for me to like live my values. I just know there's no hero that's going to like fly down. Like, you know, the context, like, yeah, if you do buy the magazines, like you participate in that mm-hmm. exploitation. So it's a really, really interesting time because now we do have the the language. The information is out there. We know what's right. We know what's wrong. And I also think about it in the context because obviously this is all about like work and, you know, people's professional life. I think about what does that look like in a remote world? Because before you would all be in an office and even still then people would be like bullied or like excluded. Like I remember somebody saying to me, you know, she'd recently joined a new team and they hadn't invited her to the WhatsApp group. Mm. And another person was like, oh yeah, you need to add, you know, X to like the WhatsApp group. And like they left her out of the WhatsApp group, you know, and all of the social stuff was happening 
in the WhatsApp group, like, let's do this, let's go here, let's go there. And she was asking me for advice. I said, you need to say to this person, why haven't you added me to the WhatsApp group? Because that's basically like what I would do. But it's so horrifying for people. And then you're in a situation, let's say there's a team of 10 of you, and then one of you is not in the WhatsApp group. I don't understand why everybody else is not saying you haven't added so-and-so to the WhatsApp group. So what does it look like in a remote world where we're all at home and these things are less visible? Mm -hmm. 100%, because the other aspect to what you've just said there is, if my nine colleagues are in a WhatsApp group and I'm not in the group and I have to ask, like, why haven't you added me to the group or can I be added to the group? It's also because that has been so manufactured, the adding of me to the group has been so manufactured, it's almost like I'm on the back foot. I can't ever be like, oh, no, thanks, guys. I won't be able to make it. It's like, well, you fought to be added. <laughs> now you've got to be at everything. There's no kind of democracy aspect to it where it's like, oh, listen, guys, was thinking about doing X, Y, Z. You have had to beg almost to be included, which means that then you're not on the same footing as everybody else who kind of comes and goes as they please. But then are you going to not be in the WhatsApp group for a year? for two years. Yeah, true. I just think that now things are even more subtle. I don't know if you would call that a microaggression, but there are so many things that happen now that are so subtle Mm -hmm. that it just depends on who you've explained that situation to. When that was explained to me, I was thinking this is not acceptable, especially when someone is new to a company, when they're new to a team, I always try to like extend myself to make people Mm -hmm. feel welcome. So when I hear, and I, I know what it's like to join a team, and for them to not be interested yeah. in a new person. So because I know what that's like, you know, and when that did happen to me, like in one of my first jobs, when that did happen, I went to the manager and I'm like, mate, <laughs> your team suck. <laughs> Why is no one offering to help me? Like what's going on? But I realized just everyone has a different personality. And I think that being in a remote world, is going to create an advantage for the people that are willing to like, be pushy, have uncomfortable conversations, but still get the outcomes that they want. And people that need to be encouraged to do that a bit more are basically at a huge disadvantage. Totally. I think that the world is very much so geared up to benefit extroverts. It's an extroverts world. And the thing is, some of us can be extroverts. I, I actually include myself in this camp. Some of us can be extroverts when they need to be. But my battery, once my battery is depleted, I am done. Like I can be networking and working the room and at a party or whatever and having a great time. But once that exhaustion from doing that hits in, I need to go home immediately. (laughs) Yeah, but what's going to happen now? Because they're all saying like the nine to five is dead, right? And I was thinking about that and I'm like, yeah, I'm all for the nine to five being dead, but I'm not all for me having to be always on. And so... Yeah, you do have people that are happy to sort of network and are extroverts, right? But like you said, everyone's battery dies at some point. Yeah, everyone's got a certain amount of bandwidth. And what you use it on over the course of the day is up to you. But like, when we talk about the nine to five, I would always prefer... It's in in the same way that the world is set up for extroverts, right? The world is set up for early risers. And because I can be an extrovert and because I am an early riser, I'm like, and what's wrong with that? But obviously, for other people who are like, listen, I take a little while, I would happily work until 9pm, but I don't want to start work until whatever midday. Nothing is set up to benefit those people. It's a very kind of binary. Well, this is what work time looks like. This is what leisure time looks like. Yeah, exactly. And so I think we all want flexible working. um, But it'll be interesting because the benefit of flexible working is like, wow, we can include more people in the workforce in theory, Mm -hmm. but capitalism doesn't work that way. So I'm interested in seeing how this really does play out. You know, I think people who are extroverted, who are high energy, who can set boundaries, who can deliver and like manage ambiguity because things are so ambiguous now. I think those folks are going to fly. But then I just think that like always on culture and, you may have a working style, but what if your manager has a different working style? Like, it's not that just because you're in a flexible working environment, you're working in a way that benefits you. 
like usually you have to make sure that you're matching, you're aligned with whoever you're reporting into. So it's just becoming a bit more complex. And it's becoming complex as well. You know, flexible working, as you said, it's not one size fits all, but also with our generation, it's where we're talking more openly about things like managing the the workload and we said this in one of our episodes before Christmas women take on the burden of domestic chores stereotypically and you know statistically speaking the majority of that tends to fall to women from a delegation perspective as well as an action perspective because you'll often hear men say things like I'll hang out a wash you just have to tell me And it's like, well, that defeats the entire purpose. If I've got to make the list of chores and then delegate them accordingly, that is also work. That's not a 50-50 kind of enterprise. And so the idea hopefully would be as we move towards an actual flexi working system that men would take on an equal role in childcare and that there's a more egalitarian experience as a whole as opposed to this, oh, well, I get to work from home on Wednesdays because it means that I can pick the kids up from school. We already know that work from home benefits workforces in terms of actually a better work-life balance, but it also benefits businesses in terms of getting more work done. So as you said, it's about having these conversations, but also having the courage to have these convictions almost and back that up. It's like, listen, I want to do this because it's good for me, but I also believe it can be good for you. Yeah, I think without some backbone, mate, life just happens to you. So yeah, that's actually a nice pivot to what I wanted to talk about, which was basically the Bumble IPO. Mm -hmm. And so I'm super excited about Bumble as a company, the CEO of Bumble. So Whitney Wolf Hurd, she's such a solid example of someone that had the courage to step out, to have a vision to own it and now she's having massive success with the Bumble IPO you know for those of you that don't know the background she was an earlier exec at Tinder and she experienced like sexual harassment there she was pushed out and then you know that's basically what led to Bumble and Bumble's USP in the marketplace is that women have to initiate on Bumble so the goal is basically to stop you from receiving like random messages from people that you have no interest in speaking to. So that's why I always thought Bumble was interesting, but share like a bit of your experience with Bumble. Well, actually it's funny because when we talk about that egalitarian experience, you know, from a domestic perspective, like work, home, life balance, domestic chores, childcare, all the rest of it. Obviously, in most of those instances, women are the ones who take on the majority burden. But I think in terms of dating and dating apps, it is men who are expected to make the first move, you know, pay for meals, whatever, they are supposed to always be the alpha in a new dating scenario. And that was something I'd never really questioned. Obviously, it's been a while since I've used Bumble, I'd say, couldn't tell you how long my husband and I have been together. So I don't want (laughs) to catch myself out too badly. Let's say it was like five, maybe six years ago. But it was really difficult. I found it really hard to actually initiate those conversations and it was an insight into how difficult it must be to be a man and to be doing that initial outreach getting in touch hoping that someone will respond to you apparently because what the the guys I've spoken to what they say is that like the girls might just say hi and you still have to do a lot of the pushing the boat forward. the heavy lifting (laughs) yeah you have to do a lot of the heavy lifting um because the girls would just be like hi and expect you to say something yeah I well I mean now I was I guess I was probably trying to be a little bit more creative than that but I'd say in terms of the content it probably wasn't much I like your guitar (laughs) (laughs) but conceptually it is such a good idea because dating is such a dangerous place for women Okay, all right. This is a feel-good story, so let's try and be no, feel-good. No, no, sorry. Maybe. I'm not going to take it too dark, but it is a dangerous place for women. So to put women in the driver's seat of that experience 
and make sure that any contact is completely consensual because you have initiated it. It makes it hopefully a more pleasant experience for everyone involved. There are a few other reasons why I love Bumble. And one of them is that they really do have, they have a very inclusive brand, right? So they did a really cool campaign with um, Elsa Majimbo. And for those of you that don't follow Elsa on Instagram, you need to. She's like one of those lockdown stars, very funny, very dynamic. And she's partnered with really cool brands, including Bumble. And so she was doing like a, a series on Instagram where you would call up Elsa and ask for relationship advice. And so they're, whoever's in their like marketing team, they really have like their pulse on pop culture. And they also did like a really awesome like black love series with sort of just a bunch of, sort of famous people. And I think that it seems to be genuinely progressive. It seems to be genuinely inclusive, right? They partnered up with Serena Williams. They invest in other female entrepreneurs. So Bumble does seem to be the real deal. And Whitney, like, seems legit. So I invested in Bumble last week. Amazing. And I'm super excited. I'm like, you know, and I, in terms of um, sort of online dating as an industry, we're now at a point where more couples meet online than in person. I mean, I can imagine that being the case because also we live in more stranger danger times. I don't think that people are just going up to start chatting with one another at the bar. <laughs> like kindling a meaningful relationship off the back of that. I think that what Bumble has done so well is I could be off on my timelines here, but Tinder was the first one in terms of an app. Obviously you had plenty of fish and and guardian dating and, and all of that kind of stuff. But when Bumble spun out from Tinder, it was kind of at the right time because now there's so many, right? There's Hinge, there's Bumble, there's Tinder, I'm sure that there are a couple more that I just can't think of right now, but they've really leaned into their USP, which, as you said, is kind of progressivity at its core. And we said this last week when we were talking about the Golden Globes and diversity in media and everything like that. It is always a winning choice to be progressive, to be progressive and innovative invariably ends up paying dividends. Yeah, exactly. When you talk about kind of like dating, like being a bit scary, online dating, and that book was written about it. And I don't know if she was online dating in that book, Queenie, um, but black women experience a lot of harassment online, right? And Bumble is seen as like one of those apps where, do you know what, it's actually okay to be like a black woman trying to date. So that's a good thing. I wonder if it's one of those things as well, because you mentioned that Whitney herself had encountered harassment and sexism when she was working at tinder i feel that you can either go one of two ways when you encounter an experience like that you can either lean into the behavior and be like well i got over it so it's fine to proliferate that kind of attitude or you can really do a 180 and say okay well listen this is what i know i can bring to the table and this is what i have been bringing to the table within this organization i don't like the toxicity so i'm taking my values and i'm bringing them elsewhere I'm going to spin a whole new organization out of just the positive aspects that I've encountered. Yeah, exactly. And guys, that's why it's really important for you, especially in 2021, if you have values, not everyone does, but if you do, it's so important for you to know that your voice does matter and you can make a change. Like I'm a firm, firm believer of that. And I just think that Bumble is such a great example of, of that being done successfully, like for you to be an early stage executive, you in theory should have some power, like you shouldn't be being harassed, right, by your colleagues, right? And for you to take that negative experience and pivot and lean into what you believe and commit, and then, you know, you basically go public, your company goes public. This is not an everyday situation right? Whitney has now become like the youngest self-made billionaire. We talk about this all the time, again, not an everyday situation. So I do believe if you're willing to not be ordinary, that you can actually do things that are extraordinary. And this is an example of that. But it starts in your everyday. It starts in your everyday. Who are you? And I think as well, if you don't know what your values are, or if you, as you said, you don't have values currently, I actually do think that that's okay as well, because most people haven't sat down and thought about them 
You can do that right now. You could get a pen and a piece of paper and you could spend an hour or a week, whatever, thinking about, okay, well, what aspects of my personality and what aspects of my life are integral? What can I not get rid of? In the case of Whitney, obviously a significant pillar there was, well, women should have the freedom and the safety to meet people, meet meet people that they want to date and be able to do that in a safe environment, which at its crux, if you continue to drill down, is just equality. So she recognized an inequality in the system and she said, okay, well, how can I address that? Because equality and egalitarianism and feminism is at the root of what I do. Here's the solution for that. And as you said now, she's one of the youngest female self-made billionaires. Yeah, exactly. So I definitely thought it was something that we should celebrate and it's something worth highlighting. It's so crazy, though, just kind of like being out of the game for so long. I do hope Bumble is blessing you guys with partners. The thing is, you mentioned earlier, you know, 50% of people meeting their partner online. And I think that there was a, a time when that was weird you know, and, and not that I necessarily thought it was weird, but I know that I dated people that I've met on Tinder and that there was this kind of unspoken thing where it's like, oh, you don't say where you've met them. But I, I would like to think, and I know I can be guilty of seeing things just through my own focal point, but I would like to think that no one cares anymore because how you met your partner isn't the most interesting aspect of your story. And also as we've gotten a bit older, maybe people just ask that question less in general. And I was like, how did you meet your husband? You know? No, I think people still ask. It's always interesting to know how people met, but I definitely don't think people judge you. Like millennials, Gen Z, I don't think anyone cares Mm -hmm. that you met your partner online. We are on our phones so much. Like if you could meet, you know, a life partner or someone that you can have a meaningful relationship with, that's actually a good use of your time. That's actually not a bad point. I also think that because we spend so much of our time online, so much of our personality is like cultivated and shaped by what we do online. So it's in the same way that you could kind of create a ranking of the dating apps and how serious somebody is about actually finding a partner on one of these based on what app they're using. Or, you know, is it, I'm just looking for a fling. I'm just looking to mess around. Apparently Um, Bumble is all about the fling though. Oh, and is it? Yeah, and hinges about the I'm looking for a serious relationship. I know a couple of people who have started serious relationships off Hinge, but I also know some people who have started serious relationships off Tinder. So I guess, you know. Oh, I know married people that met on Tinder. Do you really? That's lovely. Yeah. yeah. I think for a while that was such a novelty that didn't Tinder like sponsor some weddings or something like that or fund some weddings because they were like oh our first married couple our first (laughs) tinder baby and things like that and now as you say you know it's commonplace it's not uh it's not a big deal yeah it's not a big deal at all and I just think that the way that the world is now if technology if you can use technology to lead to happiness good if technology can make your life easier and I mean this in all aspects of my life if technology can make my life easier then I'm going to use technology to make my life easier. I'm not thinking, well, you know, this isn't how the ancestors did it. Yeah, and I also, with everything that's happening, like politically and socially, I think that not everyone is comfortable just like stopping a woman in the street. Mm -hmm. Right, so before people would get like stopped in the street. I don't know if that's still happening to people, but now it's a lot more sensitive. So things are not going to go backwards. Like, I don't think in 10 years or in 20 years, you're going to have more couples having met at a party or like through a friend. I think you're going to have more couples meeting online, especially because we've got 12 to 24 months of this lockdown. (laughs) So are you going to put your life on hold for two years? Also, I think it's hard. Like one of my good friends met someone in one of the interim periods between lockdowns. So, you know, she's been talking to this guy but they can't see each other. And so it's, you know, the the in, you're at that in-betweeny stage where you can't, how many phone calls are you going to have to sustain a relationship that hasn't gotten a chance to actually get up and running? Those are the people that are, they're paving the way on this new terrain because they're it's a lived experience for them and they're on the front lines of it. And I also think just to go back to what you said about we spend so much of our lives on our phones and so much of our lives online, It's also like, I actually want to know what kind of 
Twitter accounts you follow. I want to see what your explore page looks like on Instagram. And you can say that those things are frivolous, but they actually inform a lot of what we do. Like, are you watching YouTube videos that are literally radicalizing far right kind of indoctrination vids? It it makes sense that you would actually get to learn. I want to know what someone's texting style is like. Because that can be make or break for me. <laughs> really? Oh, my yeah, God. Totally. I guess. Yeah, I guess because we send so many messages now. But there's an interesting TV show on Netflix called Osmosis. And it's basically a French show. And it's like Black Mirror style. And basically, in this TV show, there's an implant. So implanted with this chip. And then it like analyzes your social media and other people's social media to help you find your soulmate. Right. Right. So it basically uses social media to identify who your soulmate is. Does it work? Well, I mean, I've only watched like a couple of episodes of it, but the show is actually excellent. I would definitely recommend it. But then what's funny about the show is like one of the girls who gets the implant, she's not into exercise, she's overweight. And then she ends up basically being matched with a guy who's like super athletic. He's like a trainer. And then like she goes to like find him and you know, it's just very interesting because you can be different and you can have different hobbies, but then there's still an area where like you can connect and this person can be your soulmate. Totally. Like, so she's like, I hate exercise. She's so shocked, you know, that this is a guy. And she's like, but I hate exercise. But then he's like all flirty and he's like, no, but just come and join my class and stuff. So it's really early stages. But I do think that AI is going to get a lot more sophisticated in terms of okay, based on your cookies, mm-hmm. right, and the way this person behaves online, this is basically the match for you. That's going to kick in, yeah, for sure. And I think as well, I am so unafraid of that, that, you know, say if you're on Pinterest and you're seeing the suggested posts, and I like looking at it for holiday and interiors and kind of just fashion in general, but I have no problem, you know, clicking the little X on a picture and being like, show me less of this. Because I want that algorithm sometimes to know more about me because I don't want to see things that aren't of interest to me I actually do want to see things that resonate with my aesthetic or political tastes or whatever the case may be so I should probably be more cautious about that kind of stuff but I'm like oh I will tell you exactly what I want (laughs) yeah but I think it's a good it's good in the sense that you know like me and my husband we are really into the same things Mm -hmm. like our political views our social views like there's such a strong overlap and so even a lot of the content that we consume like we both really find it funny or we both find it irritating or we both find it interesting and that's really great for me like I'm super super happy about that but also you do have some couples that don't vote the same you do have some couples that you know, really respect each other and are really aligned in terms of the life they want to build together, but then don't necessarily agree on certain things that maybe you or I would consider non-negotiables. So I think the challenge we have with like online dating and when the algorithms and the AI really starts to kick in is that there's going to be less of those types of couples. Yes, I think that you're right. Couples that can engage in a kind of a a sparky discourse and be like, huh, I hadn't considered it that way. Because that is what you also need. It is so important to be aligned, whether it's your friends or your partner, because I think it happens less with family. But say in the people that you're choosing to surround yourself with, that level of discourse where you can have a conversation, say, this is something that means a lot to me. Have you considered this angle? That is what keeps the relationship and again be it platonic or romantic alive I think it helps us evolve like I think it helps yeah. society evolve if you can have deep and meaningful conversations with people who have a different perspective mm-hmm. but with our desire to have very specific experiences curated for us we do need to kind of leave room for ourselves to grow and for ourselves to evolve. And that only happens when we are exposed to different things. And the challenge we have with our online experience, A, we're more, we spend more time online. Like online is literally a place like, that I'm at all the time. So I'm spending more time online. It's really kind of specific to the things I'm interested in. And then so I do wonder if I would have evolved into another person or if I would have had other ideas, if I didn't have this like 
Jules land that I go to to kind of reinforce those ideas that you have been like kind of ruminating on anyway yeah and it's different as an adult because or as an older adult right because I've been used to being around you know I had a colleague that was basically alt-right and we would like discuss it and he had his views and like he'd ask me questions and I was never really emotional about it because I'm just like this is a dude with like a completely different <laughs> reference point and perspective to me and outside of his alt-right views he was actually a good guy so hard isn't it because I feel like <laughs> that's almost a contradiction in terms it's like how can you be but I, I get what you mean it was a weird kind of by alt-right I mean he would post bright bar posts on Facebook oh wow that's alt-right right totally yes exactly and I guess not everybody you can, you're within your rights to say, I don't want to speak to someone like that ever again. But I think that the ramifications of that could be really extreme with people just having never even had a conversation with someone that differed to them. And then when they do, it's just incredibly tri- triggering. <laughs> it's like pushes you completely over the edge. You don't even know people like that exist. I think homework for this week, for anyone listening, is to send this podcast to a friend that you don't agree with on a topic and see if it makes any difference are you able to learn something from one another I don't want to do it myself I'll be honest I'm ser- I'm searching for peace in my own life but <laughs> sometimes maintaining those relationships with people that have such an opposing view is really hard you've got to find the the balance yourself exactly as, as you said you've got to seek that harmony where it's like oh listen I find this person a bit annoying or I find them a bit extreme for my taste but I can learn from them versus this person is crazy. This person is a conspiracy <laughs> yeah. theorist. They have to go. Yeah. But I do also agree that you want to, on some level, make the effort to not be just trapped in your own echo chamber because it is all too easy. They make your echo chamber so comfortable. Why would you ever leave? Yeah, absolutely. Bang on, Phoebe. I agree. <laughs> oh, no, you're my echo chamber. <laughs> oh, so annoying. I think so. I think so. Looking for Jules and Phoebe plus guest to shake things up a bit. Oh, absolutely. I think we need to have some guests with opposing views. But guys, thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. Follow us on at Jules Phoebe on Instagram. And share with a friend. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.